Hello and welcome to The Search. I'm Shahe Jurgen. This is Biblical History, the story of God's work through the ages. We've come to Lesson 6, Monarchy and the Temple. Moses led Israel out of Egypt and mediated their covenant with God. Tragically, the people rejected God's plan to take Canaan, so the Lord cursed them with 40 years of wilderness wandering. Joshua led the next generation into the promised land. With God's divine help, Israel was able to defeat the major armies of the Canaanites, and the land was divided between the 12 tribes. No centralized government or leader was ordained to replace Joshua. God's desire was to rule the people directly with local tribal elders dealing with matters of justice and administration. The last command Joshua ordered was for each tribe to fully subdue the remaining Canaanites in their territories to ensure their evil influence did not lead Israel away from God and into idolatry. However, the people ignored God's warnings. They allowed the heathens to remain, and their pagan influence led Israel into apostasy time and time again. For centuries, Israel would abandon God, be punished, repent, and be delivered by a judge who was a warrior summoned by God to deliver his people. The last judge to shepherd Israel was Samuel, who was also a prophet. Samuel was a transformative figure in Israelite history, like Moses and Joshua centuries before him. Samuel was a righteous man, but his sons were corrupt, and Israel did not want them replacing Samuel. So they came to the prophet with this demand, appoint us a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have, 1 Samuel 8 and verse 5. The people were right to reject Samuel's wicked sons. But their desire to have a king was not because they wanted to serve God better. God acknowledged this when he told Samuel, It's not you they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king, 1 Samuel 8, verse 7. The problem with their request was their motivation to be just like their neighbors. And in the end, God gave them exactly what they wanted. The first king appointed by God was a tall, impressive-looking man named Saul. Saul was from the relatively small clan of Benjamin, but its central location among the 12 tribes made it a logical place to form a central government. After Samuel announced God's choice of Saul, many were underwhelmed and unimpressed because Saul was a young man, he was pretty inexperienced in combat, but everything changed when the Israelites who lived east of the Jordan River were attacked by the Ammonites. The eastern Israelites, often collectively referred to as Gileadites, were being crushed. So they dispatched messengers to ask their western kin for help. When one of these riders came to Saul's hometown with the dire news, the young man leapt into action. He rallied the tribes and gathered a staggering host of 330,000 men, one of the largest armies ever assembled in the days of the Bible. The army marched hard to the east. The next day, Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. 1 Samuel 11, 11. No one questioned Saul's legitimacy ever again after this decisive victory. Now, Saul 
was a competent king. And really, he exhibited many noble qualities. You remember earlier when I said that there were a bunch of people who questioned whether he could actually be Israel's king and were pretty lackluster about their uh, their acceptance of his reign? Well, he forgave all of them. There were people who came to Saul and said, we should punish all those naysayers. And he said, no, this is a time for rejoicing, not a time for punishment. So he was a forgiving and noble man in those early years. However, Saul's glory did not last. The king started to rebel against God. On one occasion, he disregarded a directive from Samuel. On another occasion, he failed to follow through with an express command from God. These rebellious acts turned God's favor away from Saul and towards an unsuspecting shepherd boy named David. Around this same time, a force came against Israel that even the warrior King Saul was unprepared to meet. The Philistines, their old enemies, were back. But this time, they brought with them a new superweapon, a giant warrior named Goliath. Young David was the only man in all of Israel who was willing to face the giant in single combat, not because David had confidence in his skills as a warrior, but because David remembered a truth that all of his countrymen and even the king had forgotten. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. 1 Samuel 17, verses 45 and 46. David slew Goliath by the power of God. King Saul, who didn't know that the Lord had anointed David to replace him, made the lad one of his generals. David's fame grew, and Saul became bitter with jealousy. Saul spent much of the remainder of his reign focused on trying to kill David in a mad rage. (laughs) Israel wanted a king like all the other nations, and God gave them exactly what they asked for, a monarch who was consumed with envy, bitterness, selfishness, and eventually insanity. King Saul died, and after a seven-year civil war which followed his death, the tribes of Israel united together in crowning David as their king. Once David ascended to power, he accomplished two notable achievements which dramatically changed the course of Israelite history in meaningful ways. The first was his conquering of Jerusalem. Now, for 500 years before David, a clan called the Jebusites controlled Jerusalem, and there was no Israelite force who was ever able to dislodge them, even going all the way back to the days of Joshua and the conquest of the land, until David. The king made Jerusalem his new capital. Jerusalem, Zion, the holy city of David, would be the heartbeat of Israelite culture and society and the nation for centuries. 
After Jerusalem was secured as David's new capital city, the second major achievement that he accomplished was the restoration of the Ark of God and its transfer to Jerusalem. A while ago, during a battle with the Philistines, the Ark of the Covenant was stolen. Now remember, the Ark was God's throne. It rested inside the inner sanctum, the most holy place within the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this tent. It was the mobile Eden, that sacred space where Israel's priests on behalf of the people could go and minister in the sanctuary and be in the presence of God to offer him sacrifice and worship and praise. And the ark signified the very presence of God among his people. But for decades, it had been lost and forgotten. And David recognized that this needed to be corrected. He recovered the ark, although he had several stumbles along the way until he consulted God's way of doing things and conscripted the Levites to help. But finally, the ark was relocated to Jerusalem, the new capital. Now, all of these events recorded in 2 Samuel 5 and 6 They're incredibly important. See, God had raised up David, a man after his own heart, whose loyalty to the Lord never failed. Now, I want to emphasize this point. David was not always a good man, and he was not always a righteous man. David made some serious errors in his life and committed grievous sins. But in all that, David never forsook God. In addition to David, the model king, Jerusalem has now become the model city. So we have a grand capital of governance, but more than that, a central location for Israelite worship and community. The ark represented God taking up his residence in Jerusalem. So it's no wonder that the very next thing David wanted to do was to build a temple for the ark. The king, Jerusalem, and the temple, all these things culminate together into an amazing encounter between God and David in 2 Samuel 7. There are some chapters in the Bible that dramatically reshape the course of human history, and 2 Samuel 7 is one of those chapters. It begins with David making an important recognition. Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. So King David summoned Nathan the prophet, who seems to be sort of Samuel's successor, to discuss his desire to build a grand and glorious temple for the Lord. Now, at first, Nathan blessed David's plans. He thought this was a great idea. But then he received a message from God saying that David would not be permitted to build the temple. Instead, the task would fall upon David's son. However, Because of David's loyalty, not his flawlessness, not his sinlessness, but because of his allegiance to God alone, he would receive an amazing blessing and promise. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, 
and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16. In previous lessons, we've considered the meaning of covenants. A covenant is like a treaty. It's an agreement that God makes with individuals like Abraham or groups like Israel. These agreements are centered around God's solemn promise to be their God and for them to be his people. Here, God made a special covenant with the house or the dynasty of King David. He promised that one day an heir of David would ascend to an eternal throne. He would establish an everlasting kingdom. And this promise would guide and inspire Israel for centuries. The people would cherish the Davidic line. Prophets would continually affirm that a great anointed king would surely come from the house of David and that all of Israel's future hopes would rest in this monarch. Read Psalm 2 or Psalm 110 as examples of how this promise to David are these promises to David are cherished and incorporated even into Israel's liturgy and singing and worship. David, great king as he was though, eventually went the way of all mankind and died. His son Solomon ascended to his throne. Before his death, David worked tirelessly to prepare for the temple's construction, organizing the labor and materiel, setting up his son for success. Solomon immediately took up the project that was so important to his father. For 13 years, the king spared no expense. He dedicated every available resource towards the massive building project. The structure and the interior furnishings were a sight to behold, with gold glistening in beauty and splendor. When the construction effort was completed, Solomon assembled all of Israel to the holy city for a grand dedication ceremony. The priest then brought the Ark of the Lord's Covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark and overshadowed the Ark and its carrying poles. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. 1 Kings 8, verses 6 through 10. God once dwelt in the garden temple of Eden, and then he presented himself to the Israelites on Mount Sinai. His glory cloud moved from the top of the mountain into the tabernacle to lead and guide Israel to their journey to Canaan land, and then it took up residence in Shiloh. But now God has come to his temple, his new sacred dwelling in the holy city of Jerusalem. James Smith writes about this occasion. 
because of its importance in the history of redemption, the sacred historian, that's the writer of Kings, devotes considerable space to the dedication of Solomon's temple. Thousands of people flock to Jerusalem to share in the paramount event. Without question, the dedication of Solomon's temple was the grandest ceremony ever performed under the Mosaic dispensation. Now notice how in just a few short decades, the people of God transitioned from 12 mostly disparate tribes who rarely ever worked together to a united kingdom under the banner of the Davidic monarchy. Jerusalem was their capital city, and the temple became the center of their religious life and devotion to God. All of this, of course, was a part of God's plan. God knew that one day Israel would be ruled by kings. He told Moses centuries before the prophet Samuel and kings Saul, David, and Solomon that Israelite kings had to be pious and dedicated to the law. They couldn't trust in wealth and power. They needed to learn to rely on God alone. You can read this in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. God raised up Saul to teach the people an important lesson. A worldly king ruins the nation. King Saul's shortcomings, especially his rebelliousness, cause Israel great pain and suffering. Israel demanded a king like their neighbors, and Saul was that king. But in David, the people experienced something altogether different. They learned what a godly king, whose devotion to the Lord never wavered, could do for the nation. Oh yes, he had his own shortcomings, many of them. But even in his sin, David knew of his obligation to the Lord. Kingship in the Old Testament is often a lesson about leadership. See, human leadership, even at its best, is frail, weak, and subject to corruption. Kingship, when done right, can produce an overflow of blessings for the people. God told David that one day his heir, a king who would be God's true son, would establish an eternal throne and build a house for God that even Solomon's glorious temple could not rival. Now we know that God was speaking of King Jesus and the kingdom of heaven, the house of God, the temple of the living God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as it inhabits our space here on the earth. God breaking through into our reality to make his presence known so that his will can be done on earth as it is in heaven. But for now, let's notice some important truths and lessons that we can learn from monarchy and the temple. We've learned that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, as he was for Abraham and David. These men were not flawless, but their devotion to the Lord produced an abundance of blessings, not only for them, but for many, many others around them. We've learned about the dangers of worldliness, the desire to conform oneself to the ways of those who have no interest in following God, as Israel so often did when they wanted a king like all the other nations. We've learned about courage, the willingness to stand for God no matter what is happening around you, as young David did in the face of the giant Goliath. We've learned about kingship and its important lessons about leadership, particularly in how God's divine plan of leadership is manifested among his people through the Davidic line. And we've learned that the temple is where God dwells. Solomon's temple was glorious, and it was the center of Jewish religious life and piety for centuries. 
Now, the glory days of David and Solomon were Israel's golden age. It was a time of jubilation and praise, a time when the people of God united in his service as they hadn't done since the days of Moses and Joshua. But now, unlike the days of Moses and Joshua, they worship God in their own land. Major threads of biblical history are coming together. The promised land with Jerusalem at its center was the place where God put his name and took up residence. The temple was his house where heaven and earth met together and God and his people could be one. The Davidic king represented God's rule on the earth, and the priests ministered and sacrificed to the Lord in his holy presence. They ministered in God's sacred space. As Solomon said at the temple in his dedicatory prayer, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your ways. You've kept your promise to your servant David, my father. With your mouth you have promised and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. 1 Kings 8, 23 and 24. God promises and God truly fulfills.